You're listening to Johnson & Boone Solicitors podcast exclusively on the Pod Station. Welcome everyone to episode 6 of the Johnson & Boone podcast. My name's Mark. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Each week uh, provide some tips and some advice within the legal sector that will hopefully help you out of whatever quandary you might find yourself in. Uh, this week I'm joined by not Rob. I don't know where Rob is. Um, he's either self-isolating or just taking a prompted holiday and Jonathan Fields is joining me this time. How are you doing Jonathan? I'm good thanks Mark, yourself mate? I'm not too bad at all. How are you enjoying the whole uh, self-isolating lockdown? Well, it's a challenge, um, just trying to keep myself busy, keep going, obviously work's still going on and lots of inquiries still coming in that we're trying to help clients with at the moment. Now, for the benefit of the people who possibly aren't familiar with you, um, what what sort of areas do you tend to deal with within Johnson & Boone? Uh, I deal with a couple of areas. I deal with uh, some landlord and tenant matters, and I deal with some children matters as well, um, child contact arrangements and things like that. Okay, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, it's uh, a good topic to go through this time, I think. Yeah, so just quickly, uh, if you want to check out some of the earlier shows that we've done, we've done a whole host. So as Jonathan mentioned there, um, there is a Landlord and Tenant. We did that as episode number one. Uh, we've done some commercials, some litigation advice, some how to in, how to enforce an order if you've, you've got a, a judgment and the person who owes you the money isn't paying. So you can check all of those shows out. You can find it at johnsonandboom.co.uk where you'll find all of them. Um, you'll find all of the previous shows. You can also download the Johnson & Boom mobile app. It's free to download. You can find it on both Apple and Android app stores. On there, you'll find the feed for those shows as well, so you can actually listen to them much the same as if you were using a uh, podcast platform, whether it be Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitch, Deezer, where you can also find this show. So you can pretty much find it wherever you want to find or listen to the show itself. Uh, you can find Johnson & Boone on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. So if you have any questions or comments beyond the normal contact information with Jonathan, which Jonathan will provide to us at the end of the show, uh, you can drop a message or a query. If you've got any suggestions as well for topics you'd like us to particularly cover, then just send us those um, on that platform and we'll, we'll pick them up. So, Jonathan, shall we get down and dirty with this week's topic, which is about child contact and, and, and access? I guess we should really probably start with the most basic question, which is what is it when we, we talk about those sorts of things? Well, child contact arrangements are generally cases where parents have separated and they can't reach an agreement between themselves in relation to how they should look after the children where the children should live and any sort of arrangements that revolve around the children. Um, obviously, if they can't come to an arrangement between them, then they tend to seek professional help, such as myself, in order to try and help and see if we can you know, help facilitate a settlement and just see if we can do that through mediation or whether or not we need to be a bit more, um, see whether we can do that through mediation or whether we need to involve the courts at that step for them. 
Okay, and we're going to do this in two parts, really. We're going to start with circumstances that people might find themselves in right now during this coronavirus pandemic because there's probably some quite nuanced and quite niche issues that have cropped up during this time and then we'll probably go on a bit more of a generic wider range of topics and, and issues so we can help people perhaps understand uh, what they need to do or help them understand what um, they can do if there are any problems yeah okay so uh, I, I guess let's start with the first question which is with this current situation and with the current lockdown what is the position with uh, any arrangements that people have um, if they are separated and the children are living between homes of their parents general guidance at the moment is that nothing should really change it should just be that the arrangement that's in place should carry on the guidance that we've been given by the court is, is just to apply a little bit of sensible sensibility to that um, arrangement. Um, so if there's a child contact arrangement already in place, that order should just carry on. But obviously the parents have got to look at the situation. If one of them becomes ill or gets symptoms or there's a risk that the child may get ill or get symptoms, it's just a case of the parents just need to have a little bit of sensibility about them when dealing with the matter. In reality, nothing should change from the order that's in place unless there is a risk to the child about it. And the courts have given a bit of guidance that would help us with that. And the courts have said that they are prepared to let the parents, in essence, vary the order slightly if needs be but they do expect that the parents should still abide by the spirit of any order that's in place. Okay. Uh, I suppose taking this from a non-legal perspective, looking from the outside in, um, you've got you've got children who are being passed from one home to another so that both parents can see them. Uh, the general rules under the lockdown are that you should pretty much keep yourself tied down to those people within your household because, of course by touching things or carrying the illness um, and then by mixing with other people outside of your house you might be ultimately either spreading that that virus beyond the four walls of your home or to other people that's obviously going to be a risk that people have to take into account and i assume that's where the whole varying of any existing arrangements has to be a bit more flexible with people yeah i mean the general is is it's stay at home at the moment um, when that was first issued, it was a little bit unclear what was going to happen with that. And the government did come out with a slight um, amendment with regards to children. And the amendment they put in was, was where parents do not live in the same household, children under 18 can be moved between their parents' homes. But that's not to say they must be moved between parents' homes. Obviously, the government, as I said before, want the parents to be sensible about it. Um, and when they are thinking about that, as you say, they do want them to take into account the situation, the child's health, any risk of infection to the child, the parents or any other member of the household. There are occasions where I've heard that, you know, if another member of the household is shielding, then obviously that parent can't take the child at that time until obviously there's sufficient evidence or sufficient um, time has elapsed that that person's symptoms have now gone and obviously the child's no longer at risk there. 
we're assuming here that we've got amicable arrangements between the adults themselves and ideally if that is the situation and you can work through this applying the common sense that you've described there are times though where the relationship between the parents just is it either has never been or just will never be amicable um what happens if they just can't agree to um a variant of those those arrangements because of course one parent might vehemently believe that they need to protect the child by keeping them at their house the other parent might feel that they're using that to restrict their access to the kids yeah i mean there's been quite a few um issues around that exact question what do you do when the parents just can't reach agreement on it um i've heard varying examples from colleagues in the professions where some of the reasons given by the parents are just nonsensical. Um, one of the ones I've heard... I was going to say, give us some examples, obviously, without naming names. <laughs> <laughs> um, one one, one uh, matter that I've heard is, is where one parent said that my ex won't be able to teach my child their time's table. That's not sufficient reason not to grant them their time under any sufficient court order. Um, another one I heard was that even given the current circumstances, there was a child arrangement order in place. And the order was that the parent could only have the child at a specific address. Now, that specific address at the time had a person who had had to socially isolate um, through having underlying conditions and obviously didn't want to risk contracting the virus. So at that time, that parent took the child to a different address than that which was specified in the order. And when the other parent found out about this, they wanted that parent committing to jail for breaching the court's order. Wow. Yeah. Now, as I say, it's just about being sensible. Um, obviously, the other parent did everything they could do in the circumstances. Uh, I can't see what else they could do. And uh, as we say, the court want parents to abide by the spirit of the order, if not the letter of the order, as much as possible. What about if, if people have arrangements with their with parents there's there's orders in place um but there's a concern about the welfare and well-being of the child the home of that parent this is an increasing concern that we are seeing we've had or have heard of cases where the child is living with the parent who has to live with order but that parent is not abiding by the social distancing guidelines they are still going out and about they are still um, having people around the house. The other parent, quite rightly, is concerned in relation to whether or not that child is safe at the present time. What they would have to do in that situation is bring a case before the court as quickly as possible and ask the court for a residency order. There's also some sort of thought at the moment, and again, given the guidance by the court, that one parent can issue or exercise, should I say, their parental responsibility. If there's an order in place, then, you know, they can sort of move that position that I'm concerned about the other parent. I don't want my child being near them in those circumstances. I am therefore keeping hold of the child. However, again, it comes back to the fact that the court wants you to abide by the spirit of the order as much as possible. If it's a given that the child is at harm and the parent does keep the child, the other parent can still bring the matter back to court and ask the court to 
adjudicate on whether that was a reasonable assessment. Now, that's going to change on a case-by-case basis. And obviously, the court will have to consider the facts of why the order was varied and whether that was reasonable in the circumstances. If they agree that it was, then obviously it's going to be the case that the court will uphold that parent's decision. But once all this is back to normal, we'll expect the order to go back to the way it should have been. It may be in cases that the order may have to be varied. But again, unfortunately, you know, that's going to have to be assessed on a case by case basis to see what the outcome is that is needed is. Check out award-winning Johnson & Boone Solicitor's unique product, Legal Guard. Ideal for businesses and individuals, Legal Guard ensures you get the legal help you need when you need it. Packages start from just £24 a month and include free expert advice, access to a library of legal documents, as well as exclusive discounts on a range of services. For more information, visit johnsonandboon.co.uk forward slash legal guard and quote the code VEDCHESH. I'm sure pretty much every time you give somebody some advice, it's very much about bearing the child's benefits and welfare in mind and to try and reach an amicable, an amicable conclusion because that will ultimately be oh that will always be the best for the child um sometimes things don't always work out that way uh, and when that happens um you do certainly as a parent it's it's only natural you are going to want to do whatever you can within your powers to protect your children in those circumstances that you have just given um, what sort of steps by way of evidence should you be trying to collate to support that position because as you say the spirit of the order is to try and keep things as normal as possible and if you're going to step away from in inverted commas the norm and that's i use that word tentatively given the circumstances we're in at the minute um then presumably you need to make sure that you have some pretty solid evidence to back up why you would do that yeah i mean again referring back to the guidance given by the court in this instance they are saying that if direct contact is withheld, whatever the reason may be, they are expecting that at the very least virtual contact can take place. So, you know, FaceTime, Zoom, telephone calls, that sort of thing. If it's the case that the parents can't do that, then obviously there's not a very good reason why they wouldn't be able to let the other parent at least see the child that way. In terms of evidence then yes, you would probably have to back your case up with the best evidence you can get at that time. What kind of evidence would that be? Are we talking text messages, emails, anything like that? Yeah, all that sort of thing. So if the parents um, are going backwards and forwards with text messages and emails, make sure you keep hold of what's said specifically between between yourselves. And I think in the answer to that, Mark, what we'd have to say is, is Again, it goes back to just try and be as reasonable as you can. Obviously, if you have very good reason for denying the contact, you should set that out and keep a record as to why you've denied the contact and, and set that out to the other partner as well. Any response coming back then, obviously, keep hold of that. And, and if needs be, then yep, that can be referred to in later proceedings if the matter does have to go back to court for whatever reason. Fantastic. Now, we, the, the examples we've given there are very much based around 
the coronavirus issues that have been picked up, the reality is that there will have been some people, some families who have been going through this process irrespective of the coronavirus. Some might have been just at the very beginning of the journey, some might be midway and some might have been coming out of the other end. What is the normal process for making child arrangements when a relationship has broken down, ignoring for a second the slightly um, nuanced coronavirus circumstances? Generally speaking, if we can, at the start, we always try and get the other parent mediate. Obviously, if we can resolve the matter amicably between the two parents without the need for any court involvement, it's better all around. When we look at it pragmatically, at all times, we have to be mindful that the court's focus is what's best for the child, not, not, not necessarily what's best for the parents. Um, when we do try and do that, we will try and speak with the other parent first, um, see if we can arrange an agreement with them. That's not always possible, unfortunately. And what happens if we can't reach an agreement? It then moves on to a more formal footing. So before any court proceedings can be issued, court do expect the parties to have exhausted all efforts. So before we can do that, one of the stipulations that has to be done is that the parent applying for a court order needs to have attended what's called, um, the acronyms are MIAM, and that's a Mediation Information and Assessment Meeting. Okay, so, so I, I guess I guess my next question is, what, what what's one of those? What does it entail? So essentially, this is a mediation meeting. So it's with an accredited mediator who specialises in sort of mediation and trying to resolve matters um, between two essentially warring parties sometimes at this stage. So the applying parent will sit down with a mediator. The mediator will go through with them exactly what's gone on in the relationship, where the breakdown was, and what it is they're trying to get out of the child arrangement order, what sort of contact they're trying to get, and just see if they can sort of go through the process with them. Um, okay. Yeah, go on. Sorry. Keep going. Sorry, it yeah. sounds good. What they generally then try and do is get the other parent involved at that point as well. Now, some successes have come from the mediation. Sometimes it's great the other parent will engage and they can agree at this early stage a settlement between them. Um, other times, unfortunately, the other parent either won't engage or will engage but an agreement can't be reached. And at that point, then the mediation process would end and we can then be um, issued a certificate by the mediator and obviously at that point if the agreement's not reached court proceedings possibly would follow from there. So what is a parent plan because you mentioned that just a moment ago? So parenting plans are something that parents can try and agree between themselves. It in essence sets out what one parent wants and the other parent can then review that. It's goes through all sorts of things like where the child will live, who the child will live with, and when, how often one parent will see. And it then goes beyond other things like that, like maintenance issues, who will pay for clothes, 
uh, what schools they'll go to, what clubs they can go to, and you know, just general sort of guidance that the parents can look at so that when they are coming together to form an agreement, it can show that all aspects have been thought through. And sometimes parents have said that there's things that they just didn't even think of that are in the parenting plan. And had they not seen that parenting plan, would have thought, ah, didn't think about that. But by that time, sometimes it's sort of beyond where we can come back to that point. Right. It's a bit like a contract, really, between businesses. When you, you, you're hiring a service, there is a, a list of criteria. And if ever there's a problem, you can refer back to that almost as a base point, can't you, to, to make yeah. sure that you're, you're all singing off the same hymn sheet um, to keep that, that acrimonious situation. Yeah. it's If it can be arranged, it's a good thing to do. It, as you say, it does create that fallback position to that's what we've agreed and obviously the parents have something to refer back to if there ever is then um, an argument against one of the points there. Um, what happens if, 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 what happens in the unfortunate situation and mediation just isn't going to work and you need to move it on to the next step? Yeah, once this certificate's been issued, then we can move on to the court proceeding stage and then it becomes a matter for the court to decide then and the process will start from there before we go much further um we've we've gone through a mediation process and we're now having to start a, a court process when i was chatting with rob in the previous episode about litigation and we were talking about small claims and and, and starting cases yourself and the court process is very much geared when it's a, a small claim as in the value is below a certain value and the circumstances and the issues are relatively straightforward that the, the system is designed for people to be able to do it themselves. To what extent is this the kind of circumstance when you can do it yourself, or is it something which is there's just too many facets to it where people really just need to be getting some professional assistance? Um, family proceedings, Mark, are quite different to any other type of litigation that you come to. Nearly every other type of litigation you see, there's either money involved or a contract involved. This time, it, it's two parents who can't agree and a child involved. It, it's quite often emotional. It's quite often complicated as well. And without sort of touting for work or coming with it all that myself, I would always say that if you can, you should have someone who can help you and involve professional assistance. It, it can get messy at times. It's it particularly I guess it's that that person who's slightly stepped back from the situation and they can view it in a slightly more overarching manner without having that emotional time we've we've all found ourselves no doubt in situations where we're vehemently staunchly stuck in our position because we believe we're absolutely right and there'll be no one telling us we can that anything that would justify us changing our position and yet sometimes that person who's perhaps making that argument who isn't quite ensconced in in the arguments themselves probably is more right but you just don't want to have to accept that might be the case that's it. The difference with the family proceedings is that having that person who can step into the breach for you, it removes the emotional element for for that parent. I've sort of had 
and seen examples of where the parent has their position and the other parent obviously has their position. Neither parent is essentially wrong in their position, but because they cannot reach an agreement and because it's so personally involved for them, sometimes they cannot see the wood for the trees. It's a case that obviously having someone who can advise them and sort of give them realistic expectations of what they're likely to achieve and what the likely outcome is, sometimes having that step in place can save a lot of time because at an early stage you're advised that obviously this is the position, this is what the court will expect and this is what a likely outcome is for you. If we can advise a parent at an early stage of that sort of step, then we're not running having the same argument time and time again. And we've been able to sort of, sometimes we can cut a, a hearing out just by being able to say, look, this is likely what's going to come. And if the other side can come and meet us at the same point or even halfway, sometimes we can sort of negotiate a settlement earlier on than later. Yeah. So I took you on a bit of a tangent there, but you were going to tell me, um, perhaps just briefly run through the, the, the process that people have to follow to get from at the point where you need to start the formal court process right the way through to when you get a some sort of a final order. Uh, appreciating that I'm probably certain it's far more complicated than the, the process you're about to describe. Yeah. It's... Um... Many steps along the way is the honest answer to that one. So the first thing to do is issue an application to court. So that's called a C100 application. It's quite a long, complicated form to fill in. Um, spent many an hour filling those forms in. <laughs> the C100 has been issued. Um, the court will assess the application. If it's an urgent application, the court will take immediate steps to, um, to hear the application. Usually an urgent application is where there's an imminent threat of harm or danger to the child. In the vast majority of cases, though, that isn't the procedure. What the court will do is will list the matter for a first hearing. So it's called a first hearing dispute resolution appointment. At that point, the applicant will have within the C100 stated what their position is and why they're making this application and the court will direct the other parent known as the respondent to file a response to the applicant's position. Do you have a passion, hobby or expertise and want to share it with the world? Why not do a podcast? The PodStation offers a wide range of packages to make this a reality, ranging from training and support for those who have no idea where to begin, to podcasters who just need somewhere to host their show. With prices starting at a mere £15 per month, you can now get involved in one of the fastest growing entertainment forms in the world without all the headaches. To find out more, visit thepodstation.co.uk forward slash station dash packages. And remember, those with passion, podcast. So we, we filed the papers and um, they've the the other parties, the other side have had a chance to, to give a response. And we then have a hearing. Presumably, is this hearing to 
try and chew the fat on the issues at this point, see whether there's any chance of reaching an agreement or uh, are there any reports or evidence that's collated for this initial hearing just for the court to get uh, up to speed on the full extent of the issues? Yeah. Sometimes the court before the FHDRA hearing will ask um, CAFCAS, now that's the Children and Family Court Advisory and Support Service, to become involved. Generally, what their duty is, is to promote the welfare of the child during the court process. So sometimes they will prepare an initial report for the court prior to the first hearing. Uh, what they will do, they will contact each parent and discuss what their position is, any allegations that one parent is making against the other. And they will then prepare an assessment report, having heard from both parents. They will put that report before the court and then the court will have that report in their mind and consideration when assessing uh, the case at that first hearing there. Um, and what sort of recommendations can CAFCAS make when they do a report? It entirely depends on the circumstances of each case. If it's a, a case where one parent is making allegations against the other and there is some risk of harm to the child, but no immediate risk of harm. They can suggest to the court that at that time, no contact should be allowed with the other parent until further information is gathered. Now that further information can either be gathered by CAFCAS or follow from the court's order after that hearing. The CAFCAS report will look at the circumstances of each case. So they can recommend obviously depending on what their findings are from having spoken to both parents that no further contact be arranged at this point. Um, usually that would only be if there's an allegation from one parent that there's a risk of harm, albeit not imminent harm necessarily to the child by the other parent. Um, sometimes they can recommend that interim contact be arranged. Now that can go down one of two ways, either supervised contact where there's someone else with the applicant parent whilst they have contact with the child. And sometimes that can be a family member or a relative or friend, or it can be more formal and be a social worker in a contact centre. Or sometimes the CAFCAS can be of the mind that unsupervised access can happen. Um, and then they can sort of make a recommendation or an order to the court um, that uh, unsupervised access be granted, but in certain circumstances. So sometimes that'll be limited to certain days, certain times or certain places. Um, ultimately, it's the court's decision as to what will happen, but they're usually guided by what the CAFCAS officer will say. And how often is a CAFCAS report commissioned in these sorts of cases? In all honesty, Mark, probably most cases, um, certainly every case I've dealt with, it's been put in place. The court like to have that assessment before they can consider um, what they feel is necessary to do next and quite often the CAFCAS recommendations will guide the court's further directions if the matter can't be dealt with at that first hearing there. Okay so we've tried mediation it's failed uh, we've started the court process the other side have had a chance to have their say we've had an initial court hearing um, CAFCAS have produced a report that's given sort of an independent viewpoint on the issues and the the children, their welfare, what the situations are, what 
recommendations they think should be in place etc um what what's the court going to do then because presumably if if an agreement isn't settled uh, sorry if an agreement isn't reached on at that first hearing then it needs to be moved on to the next stage there's various steps that it can go from there so after the initial hearing um if agreement's not reached the court will make an order as to what's to happen next now sometimes it just depends on again each individual case if it's going to be a contentious case and there are allegations coming from the parents of say violence or abuse um, the court can order that further investigation needs to be made into that specifically they'll sometimes order police reports so if there's any police record of any incidents from either parent um, medical records if there's allegations of um, abuse or violence or in some cases mental instability and they can order medical records to be disclosed as well so that they can determine further if one parent is fit to actually be able to look after a child um, and see if there's any issues that will come around that. Um, they do also generally order that parents file a witness statement to set out further their response back to any allegations that have been made against them and sometimes in, in making allegations. So in certain circumstances, the court would order the respondent to file their statement to set out what their case is, what their allegations are, and then the applicant to file a statement in response to the respondent's statement, setting out their answers and their view as to where they're at with regards to the respondent's concerns. Um, once all that sort of been collated, um, the court will list the matter for a further hearing and at that point then the court can consider what evidence has been presented and then look at matters again at that next hearing. So they'll decide whether or not they can make a decision then or whether they need to go away and get a little bit more? Yeah, pretty much. If they're satisfied with the information that comes in there, the court can make an order at that point. Um, if the information that's come back in does raise concerns at that point the court would generally list the matter for a finding of fact hearing in essence that's a trial both parents would have to give evidence under oath and would have to set forward their version of events in their case and then the court would then consider again at the end of that what findings of fact they've made so if there's allegations of abuse are they genuine are they founded and do they raise any risk of harm to the child and then the court needs to make considerations in light of the evidence that's been given. Okay. Um, I guess there's probably a couple of simple questions that I have, uh, probably because of my simple mind, perhaps. Um, how long do these processes generally take? It can vary. If it can settle at the early stages, then obviously it's only a couple of months worth of going through the process. If numerous allegations are made and the matter does become complicated that can then be involved several court hearings so the, the rough rule of thumb will be anywhere between a couple of months and anywhere up to 12 months if they're very complicated and protracted it, it can go beyond that time as well blimey and how much does it cost then i suppose that's a really difficult question given you've just described a case that might last a couple of months and one that might last a year plus 
there's just a lot of factors to consider when making that sort of assessment. There's court fees for issuing it. Um, there's fees involved in any sort of um, orders that the applicant needs to respond with. So if the court orders um, police records to be disclosed and medical records to be disclosed, there's fees for that. There's obviously going to be solicitor's costs and barrister's costs on that. If obviously, as I said before, early settlements can be reached, they're relatively inexpensive. But if the matter becomes protracted, there's several hearings, then it, it can become quite costly. Presumably, though, when it comes to costs, um, they can people can come to you guys and get sort of a quote to find out where they stand, um, given the circumstances that they're in, so that they can at least get some some peace of mind on where they stand and what their options are. Yeah, I mean, we do offer um, initial appointments where we can sort of sit down with the, with the client and, and speak through their concerns and give relative advice from there. Um, the initial appointments that we offer usually last for about an hour. And by that, you know, we can take in what the instructions are, give them some general advice and obviously set the client's um, mind at ease with what options they do have. What happens if, if you actually go through this whole process, you get the court to stipulate what the arrangements are going to be, and then one of the parties doesn't actually follow what they've been told? It's always a precarious position. Again, you've got to look at the reasons for why that parent isn't following the the letter of the order. Now, in some cases, there are good kosher reasons as to why that's not happening. Um, if there's illnesses or the child's not well, um, then obviously contact sometimes just can't happen. But if the parent is actively withholding the child from the other parent for no good reason, uh, we'd have to refer the matter back to the court for them to assess whether or not that breach was reasonable in the circumstances. If the court finds that the breach wasn't reasonable, then obviously there are sanctions generally involved within the orders for a parent that doesn't follow the order. And what kind of sanctions are we talking about? It can vary depending on, on the severity of the breach. Sometimes the court generally will say that if a parent fails to follow an order, it can be held as contempt of court. Now, it, it's rare, I would say, that that happens. If a parent is found in contempt of court, the court does have the power to fine them, or in, in some cases send them to prison if needs be. Um, there's also other options that the court can impose, such as imposing community service, and they can order that the parent pay compensation to the other parent as well. Blimey. <laughs> so, eh, listen to what they say, I guess is the uh, the overarching advice there. Oh yes, very much so. Yeah. Um, it's. Uh, I mean, it's a difficult topic, is this? Because of course, you, I think it it's abundantly clear through everything you've said up to this point that trying to get it resolved early and amicably isn't just to the benefit of the parents who have to put themselves through an ordeal, have to financially spend money they don't necessarily need to spend but it will ultimately be for the benefit of the children if that is something that's possible. But if that ultimately isn't something that can be achieved, that go and get some help because, of course, this is such a, a difficult situation. It's such an important one as well, I guess. And There's nothing more important than people's children, is there? And 
and and trying to find a resolution and protect them so far as you're able is is always going to be a priority. Yeah, absolutely right, Mark. I mean, the presumption is that the child has a right to spend time with both parents. That's always in the back of our mind when we are trying to get the early settlement as much as we can. As you say, the earlier you can settle it, the better it is for the child. They get back in touch with their parents and it doesn't affect them. Long-term absence of a parent has been found to affect children's emotional development. And obviously, we're keen to sort of help as much as we can to avoid any situation like that. Well, it's truly fascinating. It's brilliant that this has been your debut podcast. You've done brilliantly well, might I add. Um, it's uh, if if you guys have heard anything and you really want some extra information, then how would they get hold of you, Jonathan? Yeah, give the office a call. We're on 0151 637 2034. Or if they want to email me directly, they can visit the website and my email details are on there. Brilliant. And we'll stick them in the show notes as well. You can also mm-hmm. book an appointment with Jonathan using the mobile app, which I mentioned at the outset. It's free to download. Very, very useful. Um, not least because, of course, you can you can book appointments online if if email and telephone isn't your preference. If you do have any questions, of course, ask Jonathan. Get in contact with us if there's any topics or subjects from this podcast which you'd like um, Jonathan to explain in a bit more detail. I'm sure he'd be more than happy to come back again. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed spending some time with you. It's been it's been a nice change from uh, Rob's dulcet tones. No problem, Mark. Thanks very much for your help today. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Jonathan. We'll catch you next time, guys. Take care. Get social at Johnson & Boone on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.